Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. One of my earliest basketball memories was being absolutely intoxicated by the 1991 NBA Finals, Bulls versus Lakers, Magic versus Mike, the glamour of Chicago, the glamour of Los Angeles, these big giant metropolises that I could dream about as a kid growing up in, uh, you know, Beaverton, Oregon, home of Nike. And I just got thinking, first of all, do you remember that series at all? Um, I don't. This is embarrassing to admit live on the podcast here, but I am actually too young to remember that series. I think my first finals memory was 93, Bulls Suns, John Paxson hit that game winner. That was kind of the beginning for me, and uh, I never... Like I'm sure I watched some of the Magic Michael face-off, but I have no real recollection of it. Yeah, I just remember it was like superheroes incarnate. You've got Mike going up with the the right hand, ducking down to the left hand, just doing it because he can, not because he needs to. You've got Magic, you know, still, uh, you know, not exactly you know peak Magic, but still unbelievable playmaker. If that type of series happened today, it would be insane. I mean, like those are the two biggest guys on the planet at that point. Well, I bring that up, Andrew, because I think I'm about to experience the exact karmic opposite of that. Because instead of like beautiful sunshine and palm trees in June 1991. I've got mudslides and you know a week straight of, <laughs> of rain here in Los Angeles, and I've got Bulls Lakers, but it's Boylan's Bulls, not Jordan's Bulls, and it's the LeBronless Lakers uh, rather than Magic's Lakers. I don't know exactly what I'm walking into, but I'll tell you this: it's a couple hours before the game, and I'm already bracing myself mentally and emotionally for what's about to transpire. So wait, you're going to the game though, right? To pay your respects to Boylan. A hundred percent. Look, I've been getting probably 10 or 12 Instagram messages over the last couple of weeks from random uh, listeners from the open floor globe who will just tell me they're on Boylan watch and they'll just take pictures of Boylan and they'll be at the game. He's just straying onto the court with his arms (laughs) up, screaming, going full Boylan. And they just want to let me know that they're watching and they see all the Boylan tactics that we've described. But I can't let the listeners do all the work, Andrew. I've got to hold up my end of the bargain. So I'm going to go do some very careful scrutiny, some background research on uh, Boylan's Bulls. And who knows, you know, maybe he'll be part of the Blue Bubble gang. You know, when I really dig deep at some of these games, we find lots of interesting stuff. So I'll have a full report on next episode. No, that's great. That's good to hear. I'm glad Open Floor will be in the building. And I mean, really, it's only right because I feel like if you're captain accountability, Boylan is probably general accountability. So you got to <laughs> can... go sort of glean whatever you can from him up there. I've got a notebook. I've got like extra, <laughs> I've got extra pens. I got a pocket protector. I'm ready to rock and just really learn uh, everything there is to know about old school coaching styles. Yeah, it is a, a few steps down from from Michael and Magic. I guess that's Lowry and Brandon Ingram and Lonzo. Lowry and Lonzo. Those are the top of the billing tonight. Um, yeah, let's just say that in in 2031, people are or 41 people aren't going to be looking back on this game <laughs> yeah, quite not. as fondly as I did uh, on 1991. That's fine. Well, listen, Ben. Uh, apart from what's going, the blockbuster in Los Angeles tonight, we need to go to the opposite coast here because you and I. 
I don't know. We've touched on what's going on with the Celtics, but we haven't really talked about them over the past few weeks. Um, I think both you and I have been kind of waiting for things to settle, but they are not settling. (laughs) And it's been kind of a mess over the past 96 hours or so. So I want to start with a couple questions. The first is from you. It's something that you texted me over the weekend. You said... (laughs) Uh Can you imagine if the generals at D-Day called out the young soldiers for their lack of experience and then sat out the beach landing with a quad injury? So Uh that is clearly a reference to Kyrie Irving. We will get to him in a second. But I want to read an email that we got maybe a week or two ago, and I've included it in every rundown because I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the, the spirit of it. We have not been able to get to it yet. But Tom says... We need a deep dive on the Celtics. I think it's time. They callously dismissed Kawhi Leonard, Paul Mm. George, and Jimmy Butler because their young guys were deemed too precious. Now, Marcus Smart seems to be the best player of that young bunch. They dismissed truly elite players for draft picks that turned out to be a slow, methodical scorer that plays with blinders on. I guess that's Tatum. And depends on making contested jumpers. And two guys that have been brutal in in Jalen Brown and Terry Rozier. <laughs> in addition, their celebrated free agent signings. One is already an awful contract in Gordon Hayward, and the other is over the hill halfway through his max deal in Al Horford. We have heard nonstop for almost six years about how they swindled the Nets and were going to build a dynasty with their smorgasbord of picks. But can we take stock of how the collective genius of Brad and Danny and their highly lauded rebuild ultimately resulted in nothing more than a solid team, maybe a four seed? I think much of the NBA community needs to be held accountable for the blind faith they placed in the Celtics' decision-making. And that was that was pure fire from Tom. And by the way, I know you're going to chime in and say, he didn't even mention the Kings pick, which isn't even good anymore because you always <laughs> chime in with that every well, third look, episode. I personally find it mind-blowing that the Kings asset is like half as valuable as it was, as it was supposed to be and as I think everybody could have bet on it being. But uh, but yes, that, that is just an, another thread here in this, um, I guess it's a quilt of mediocrity that the, the Celtics are working with right now. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I don't know exactly where to start with that. There's a lot going on. Um, well, first start, of all, listen, start with Kyrie. Speak from the heart. I know this is a, this is oh, something you just, care deeply about. Now you're just egging me on. But my, my take on Kyrie is very simple. For a guy who is constantly preaching about the importance of outside-the-box thinking, he sure is a conventionally bad leader. <laughs> I mean, let's blame the weakest links once there's adversity. Let's not take any responsibility, put it on our own shoulders. Let's go ahead and just say, oh, it's a lack of experience and just like, you know, uh, rip a note out of Kobe Bryant's textbook. Do you think Tim Duncan, after the 2013 finals, would have gone to the media after the game in a pout and said, we lost this finals because Kawhi Leonard wasn't experienced enough to be able to make a clutch free throw? Do you think... Steph Curry, after the 2016 finals, would have gone to the media and said, you know what, we lost this finals because Festus Azili wasn't experienced enough not to jump all over the court and foul people. No, they took responsibility and accountability for themselves. And I want to give Jason Tatum 
huge credit because he actually delivered the exact perfect response to what Ky- uh, Kyrie Irving said. He basically like, that's his truth. There's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, there's a lot to what he's saying. Da, 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 da. I mean, playing the good soldier, he did not have to do that based on the way that that message came out from uh, Kyrie Irving. When I look at their inconsistency, their up and down play, the fact that the role guys are having trouble buying in, Brad's juggling his uh, rosters and rotation, trying to find the pieces that will work. It's all to kind of appease Kyrie Irving's strengths and weaknesses, and he's not carrying them through this. He had a great stretch for like two weeks in December, and everybody wanted to say, oh, yeah, Kyrie, he's amazing. He's back. He's great. He's the reason, to me, still one of the primary reasons why they're struggling so much, and they've been probably the biggest disappointment of any of the contenders uh, in the league, not even just the Eastern Conference, in the entire league. They really have been disappointing, and uh, I guess now that the Rockets have stabilized, I think they are probably the most disappointing team in the league. Um, I yeah, think that's the- another great one. I mean, James Harden's not exactly the greatest leader in the world. Did he look around and say, oh, yeah, you know, Gerald Green, <laughs> these other guys are letting me down? Come on, man. Well, and, and here's where I think you need to be careful in, in what you're criticizing Kyrie for, and not you. We, as a collective community, I think Kyrie, it's it's funny, man. I mean, literally anytime someone puts a microphone in front of, in front of his face this year, he is ready to talk about his role as a leader and what that entails and what he's trying to impart to the young guys. And literally every interview, it, it, like he manages to bring it back to, to like how he can teach these guys how to win. And, and I Stop think, right there. Andrew, question for you. Would you be motivated to play for Kyrie Irving? If he was your team's best player, would you buy into his vision? Is he... The type of personality and the type of uh, you know character and leader that you believe can lead a championship team. Put yourself in Tatum's shoes or Marcus Smart's shoes or whoever's. Do you? Um, it's a good question, and I think the Tatum thing is instructive because I think that he is still motivated to play for Kyrie, and and a lot of people have been drawing the LeBron parallels with with the way Kyrie has handled things in Boston this year, and and uh, I think that there's certainly some echoes in terms of like the preachiness. But I think the key difference is that guys like Tatum still like Kyrie and Kyrie probably didn't like LeBron for most of his time in Cleveland. And, uh, and so, but was that a Kyrie problem or a LeBron problem? Because everybody used to say it was a LeBron problem. What if it's just a Kyrie problem? I mean, it's possible. I I think that more relevant to the, to the issue here though, is that like, I don't think that the the locker room is turning on Kyrie. I think that the guys who are frustrated, like Jalen Brown does seem legitimately frustrated with some of the things that have been said. But I think Jalen is frustrated because this is a year, like he's extension eligible this summer and it, it the, the season just hasn't gone the way he expected it to go. And, um, and he's really struggled. I think though more like if we're, if we're going big picture with like what the hell has happened to the Celtics this season, I think it's worth noting that like the whole team is just not nearly as talented as we thought six months ago when we were projecting this roster and people were saying, I mean, literally like every smart basketball person had this team winning 60 games this year. And um, yeah, but hold on a second. Are we sure all these individual guys are significantly worse than we thought? Or is there some sort of a roster change? And, you know, I wonder what it could be. That's making them look worse. 
Well, so wait, so are you blaming Kyrie's return? Uh, like, are, is, is that the problem? I'm just saying if I'm a supporting player in the NBA and I've got Brad pitching me, we're the underdogs, we're going to make this deep run through the conference finals, nobody believes in us, everybody's going to get a chance to play, go out there and do whatever you can on any given night and play like ruthless basketball, that's very appealing. If the plan is, okay, you're an extra in an Uncle Drew commercial and Kyrie's going to do, <laughs> he's going to do a few takes here and, you know, he's going to dribble the ball for 10 seconds and launch a tough contested turnaround shot. And some nights it's going to go in, he's going to look spectacular and other nights it's not. But either way, you don't really get to determine whether we're winning or losing games because this is the Kyrie show. Ultimately, it would be harder to buy in every single night. And look, I'm not saying that they've turned on him, that he's got some toxic personality. Yeah. I'm not saying any of that stuff. I just think if you're a role player and Kyrie's pointing the finger at you, you should be pointing the finger right back at him and say, look, who are you empowering here? Who are you making better? And what is your impact on this team dynamic? Because you can preach all you want about a championship uh, pedigree that you've got that nobody else has got and, and digging deep and all of that stuff. Uh, that was LeBron in Cleveland. Right. You know, that was not Kyrie. I mean, Kyrie had some very important moments in those playoffs. He had some unbelievable 40 plus point games. That team is not even in the conference finals without LeBron. And uh, yeah, and I agree I'm completely. Not sure. And that's actually where I draw the line. Like, it's one thing to talk about your experience in a playoff atmosphere. But, I mean, Kyrie talking about, like, what it takes. Those Cavs teams half-assed every single regular season they had. And so, like, to, to act like it's time to crack the whip and win a game on the road in Orlando because that's what it took in Cleveland. Like... I don't know, man. I don't totally buy it. And Andrew, the, wasn't the only reason he was upset because he didn't get the last shot, right? Well, I mean, he was just mad that Tatum got the last shot. And so all this other stuff was just nonsense. It was just him spewing, wasn't it? No, I think that there's just general frustration among everybody in Boston because this everyone came into the year knowing that they had a chance to be special and it just hasn't clicked and they'll get it right for a week or two. And then they'll kind of take a step back. And I'm sure that's really frustrating for everyone involved. The Kyrie thing is interesting, though, because I think you're making good points and you've done a nice job explaining why a lot of those guys should resent Kyrie, but they don't. And I, I think a lot of people still swear by him. And um, and that speaks to like his comm- the, the respect he commands all over the NBA. And it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but guys really like him. Um, no, and- I, I agree, but let me ask you, like... They may be saying it publicly, like, but are their actions backing that up? Like, are you seeing a level of focus and intensity night to night that says, hey, we're driven to play in this team context. We're driven to play for this leader. We're going out every single night because the quotes that I'm reading in the games that I'm watching, it's guys like Al Horford saying, look, we have long stretches here where <laughs> we're just not focused enough to win basketball games. Uh, and some of these other guys are just disappearing not not feeling empowered, falling off the map. And that's not all Kyrie Irving's fault, right? right. But he, he can't put that all back on his supporting cast either. No, I, I think that Kyrie, though, still is... Um, I mean, they're much better when, when he's on the court. And, and when the starting lineup is healthy, which it hasn't been for most of the season, like they're still plus 12 in net rating and, and significantly better than than most anybody in the league. And so I, I think that Kyrie is, is not necessarily the problem. Um, 
And we saw some of that last night in, in Brooklyn. And, and I think that when you take him off the floor, you see what this team really has. And it's just not great. I mean, I'll read a quote here. This is Terry Rozier. And he says, I don't think we've all been on a team like this. Young guys who can play, guys who've done things in their career, the group that was together last year. Then you bring Kyrie and Hayward back. It's a lot with it. And then somebody asked him if the roster was too talented. And Terry Rozier said, too talented. Yeah, too talented. And like, I don't know, man. I mean, I don't see, like, after Kyrie, where's the all-star? Like, Al Horford isn't an all-star. He hasn't been at an all-star level this year. Gordon Hayward isn't close to an all-star. His game has has looked a little bit better over the last month or so. He hasn't gotten nearly enough... uh... Uh, crap has he no i mean, I mean it's it's like, rough right like he's gotten a huge huge birth because of that injury but like paul george in his first year back was a lot better than gordon hayward has been in his first year back yeah i agree and i think that um the distinction i would make is that they have eight or nine guys who would earn minutes almost anywhere in the league but like True talent is being able to kind of adapt in uncomfortable roles and still thrive. And like guys like Terry Rozier and Jalen Brown are just like maybe a step below that. And and I think Tatum has actually been decent. Yeah, I think he is good and he hasn't had to sacrifice that much. And I think that part worked out pretty well. Coming into the season, the guy who I thought they should try to cast in the Iguodala role and just basically say like, look, you don't even get to play offense was Jalen Brown. And I, I, first of all, I don't think that they did that. And second of all, he's played offense so poorly this season that it's basically, you know, a zero. Right. So they wound up having to kind of dump him out uh, from, you know, where they had previously imagined. But uh, I think that, you know, it's crazy to criticize Brad, but I don't think he defined these roles for these guys coming into the season properly. You yeah. know what I mean? And I think he probably part of that was he expected more from Hayward uh, than he's been getting. Uh, I think part of that is probably that he expected Kyrie to transition back into the offense more seamlessly. Because you remember at the start of last season, before Kyrie's injury, they were really, really rolling, and they didn't have a lot of these issues. And so he probably thought, hey, we'll just pick up from there. Uh, but that neither one of those things has happened this season. And I think, it, to be honest, I think it caught their coaching staff by surprise. Yeah, I agree. And um, that's one where I was flat out wrong because I, there have been a lot of people over the years who have seen Celtics success under Brad Stevens and said, I want to see how he does when he's coaching stars and how he manages that situation. And I always thought that was like the dumbest question in the world. And um, frankly, like this season has sort of raised some doubts about, about whether Brad Stevens can kind of manage everything. I do think like it's a safe bet that he's going to figure it out, even if it doesn't happen this year or the next year or two. Like there's still are not many coaches I would rather have uh, than, than Stevens. But, like, maybe we take away a piece of his equity in the team based on this <laughs> season. I don't know. Um, it's tough, though. And I, I think that, in general, I still like their chances. I still think that they can kind of figure it out by May. Um, but, like, everybody has been has been a disappointment. And, and really, like, it does... It's funny that Kyrie singled out the young guys because I think it's the older guys in Boston that are the biggest question marks. Like Al Horford hasn't been the same guy for most of this season. 
Gordon Hayward really isn't the same guy. And if those guys aren't going to be close to what where we thought they would be, then like the Celtics are not in the conversation with the best teams in the East. That's very well said, Andrew. Okay, here's another question for you. If we're ranking chemistry, mm-hmm. who's got worse chemistry, Philly or Boston? Because we talk about Philly's bad chemistry all day long. We get the, the practice blow-ups, and there's just always something fueling that fire, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're talking about only on-court results this year, not the big-picture questions of who gets paid, not you know Ben versus uh, Jimmy, who's actually going to be a part of that core long-term, but like who's actually making it work on the court better this year, is there an argument to be to be made that Boston has worse team chemistry than Philly? Let's not forget also, I think Jalen and, and Marcus Morris were screaming at each other in a huddle the other day and had to be separated. I mean, uh, what do you think? There is certainly an argument to be made, and I feel like that's a pretty good take if you're on like a radio show or whatever, because as far as the evidence we have, like the Celtics definitely have been more complicated than anyone expected. I just would say I bet that behind the scenes, the Sixers have been crazier than we actually know right now. And so I would still say Philly's environment is probably more toxic than Boston's in part because like on a lot of nights, like I would bet that Wednesday night, the the Celtics play the Raptors. I would bet the Celtics will go out and beat the Raptors. And on a lot of nights this season, that's what has happened. And, And particularly over the last two months, like the Celtics have been more good than bad and it it does all look kind of okay and uh so uh, like on those nights the chemistry is mostly fine and and the only guys who are unhappy are like terry rozier and maybe jalen brown although even jalen has been a little bit better lately so i wouldn't yeah, worry those two about were, it too much we're both predictable and that goes back to tom's emailed point right like they should have cashed some of these guys out I like yes. at the very least they should have traded terry rozier last summer that was staring them in the face they didn't do it and I and, think that one of the reasons they didn't do it is because they weren't totally sold on Kyrie's health. Um, but like that was a bad call. And Tom brings up a good point is like we do praise the Celtics brain trust a lot, mainly because I think they're really good at what they do. But they've had some 50-50 calls here that have just not worked out. I mean, they probably had a chance to trade Jalen Brown for Kawhi and they would not put Jalen on the table. And boy, oh boy, that one is something that they would probably like to have back. And um, I don't know. It's it's just kind of a mess because now, like, the AD thing, <laughs> I, I hate to bring up the Kings pick again, but, like, the calculus changes. They may have to put Jason Tatum on the table to go get Anthony Davis. Yeah, you don't hate to bring it up. You love to bring it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, I think um, the the discussion here, though, that we're we're missing or the perspective that we're missing they're awesome home court in the playoffs yep Kyrie is an experienced playmaker and the other teams that they're going to be potentially matched up with whether it's Milwaukee uh Toronto Philly I don't see a real great defensive matchup for Kyrie so even though we're doom and glooming this thing I mean I never thought they were going to win the title this year I thought they were going to make the finals um even though it's been really ugly, I'm not ready to count them out for making the finals. Are you? No, I, I, not at all. I, I think they're still my pick, um, and that's crazy because they're they're literally 
not anywhere isn't, in the isn't league. Isn't that crazy though, or are, is the East just kind of weak? I mean, it could be that the East is kind of weak because there aren't teams that I I really trust once we get to the playoffs, and, and the Celtics are one that I do trust. Um, but it is shocking to watch them. Like I was watching um, the end of the Magic Celtics game this this afternoon, and it's like. I mean, when you're getting worked by, like, Kem Birch and Evan Fournier and Terrence Ross, and this is a team that people were like, they're going to come in and just blow the doors off the league. It's just jarring to see where they are now and to still believe in them. It feels even crazier, but I do still believe in them. Yeah, I do too. Uh, Part of that's the home court, like I mentioned. Part of it's Brad. Part of it is I do think that their talent and depth is still pretty good. Um, and when you're playing the matchup games, I think they're going to be able to play the matchup game in the postseason better than most. Um, you've made the point relentlessly that Kyrie is a better postseason player or, or better in those moments than maybe he is over the course of an 82-game season. I think there's truth to that. Yeah. Uh, I think Hor- Horford's IQ has tended to, to shine through, and he's won some really high-profile matchups in, in recent postseasons. So there's still cause to, like, you know, believe, but... I, it's not like I feel bad for the Celtics fans, but this must have just been a grueling, awfully horrible emotional season for them to try to follow game in and game out. I mean, there's got to be a lot of moments where you turn the TV off and you just want to throw your remote straight through it. Yeah, I do feel bad in the sense that like back in October, they were probably so fired up to come in and watch like Jason Tatum be an all-star, watch Kyrie average 25 a game, like see Super team. <laughs> yeah, seriously, like on paper this looked incredible and then to tune in and, you know, at least once every 2 weeks there's a night where they just look completely miserable and broken and it would be tough to do that over and over again for 6 or 7 months. But yeah, it's like the Hangover Warriors without ever winning (laughs) yeah well and then they also they got to play with house money throughout last year's playoffs so i don't feel bad for them whatsoever and they've had just a a much better existence than i've had as a wizards fan um which brings us to two closing questions with this celtics segment first of all caitlin says i'm listening to this week's uh the starters drop and they just teased a segment in their show saying, are the Celtics the new Washington Wizards? My first thought was, this is Andrew's doing. Andrew, was your visit to the Celtics before the season the first step in sabotaging Boston? Uh, if the Wizards can't have nice things, then no one can. So, Caitlin, Brilliant theory. <laughs> it is a good theory. And I said at the time, when, we, when both you and I had uh, Lakers and Celtics cover stories, I said that there was a potential to jinx the Celtics that I was really proud of. And boy, let me tell you, that cover was Gordon Hayward, who has been mostly disastrous when he's been out there this year, and Al Horford, who doesn't look like the same guy. And then there was also like a quote from Kyrie. He was already pontificating about leadership in in the preseason. And he was saying, you know, if it's not all five of us on the cover, I don't even want to be on the cover. It was a perfect snapshot of everything that has made this regular season so frustrating for Boston. Yeah, what a complete joke of a quote. Did you believe it at the time? <laughs> I did. Well, you know what? What I the way I interpreted it was as a subtweet to LeBron, who had been part of several different big threes over the years, and I, I think that Kyrie was not interested in perpetuating like the big three 
uh, theme throughout like the NBA and, and wanted to either be on there with like eight guys or nobody. So is he going to be interested at the the big three theme when he goes to New York with KD? <laughs> I don't I don't see that happening. I do think that a KD partnership is a lot more realistic than him choosing to to pair up with Jimmy Butler in Brooklyn, which is still a thing that it gets floated out there every few weeks. That's one that um, I don't know. I've heard that they're just not as close as people think, but uh, who knows? It's all on the table. That's that's what's fun about the Celtics is. Things have been so mediocre that anything could happen this summer. Yeah, I was being completely sarcastic. I still think he's going to be back there, no no questions asked. Am I, am I crazy? Am I naive? No, I, I think there's like an 80 to 90% chance. The, the, the most realistic path for him going elsewhere would probably be like an injury that ends his season early. And then, and then if you're Boston, like I'm not sure how much sense it makes to give him the max. And if they're not going to pay him the max, then anything is on the table. So if we're trying to fix these guys before the trade deadline, what what's our recipe? Should they just trade Rogier, or is it too late? Do they just keep riding this roster, crossing your fingers? Do you try to you know mix it up and and maybe move him out of there so that there's a little bit more for everybody else? I mean, what do you do? I would I would move Rozier just to make a move and just to kind of shake things up a, a little bit. Um, I don't think that, I mean, in, in, they can't trade Gordon Hayward. I do think that Jalen Brown would be better off if he had like a built-in 30 minutes a game and, and a defined role every night, and that hasn't been the case for most of this season. Um, but it makes sense for Boston to try and get Hayward going and to sort of like bet on him being where they need him to be by May. Uh, but that... That is the other variable that it's just really hard to kind of manage if you if you're the Celtics because like you got you kind of have to keep betting on Hayward because they can't turn around and trade him. Yeah, I mean, granted, I'm three thousand miles away from the Boston media, but I really feel like Gordon Hayward's gotten off scot free this season, and like I said, it's probably injury related, but that's not going to last forever if they get to the playoffs and Hayward doesn't turn it up a notch and you're looking at Kawhi Leonard uh, in Toronto you're looking at Jimmy Butler in Philadelphia and Giannis in Milwaukee these big time max level wings yeah who are playing like it and Hayward is the weak link from that group and he's not giving you anything on in approaching a star's contribution don't you think there's going to be a huge revolt kind of coming for his, for his neck. Yeah, and I I'm surprised. I think everybody is rooting for him and um and and it should be. Like he seems like a good guy and everybody sort of wants to give him time, but like you see him out there on some of these possessions and he's just like the explosion just isn't there and there are games where he's he's tentative throughout and uh like if that's the player he's going to be, it's it's just a tough deal for everybody because he kind of slows down their offense and makes them easier to guard too. Man, it's hard to believe that the guy who could screw up the Celtics dynasty was the guy who they were so excited to get in free agency. Do you remember like the photos of, you know, Danny and Gordon at Chipotle and the back and forth over Chris Haynes is reporting about Hayward. <laughs> is he going or not going? And like, if this is the guy who stands in the way because of his contract, for all of those years worth of dreams, 
I'm almost on Tom's troll level, our emailer's troll level. I mean, he was going pretty hard at it, but well, I mean, listen, let's that would not be forget. really cruel <laughs> twist of fate. It was one of the best podcast performances from you in the entire three or four years, or however long we've been doing this. When you came on on July 5th and launched into a 10-minute monologue about how Gordon Hayward was a fake superstar, <laughs> I don't think anybody wanted you to be validated this way, um, but it definitely has not really worked out the way the Celtics were hoping. And then... No, I, I'm not going to take that credit, but I appreciate you remembering that because... Uh... <laughs> Uh, walked a little too far out on the branch on that one. Yes, what I remember specifically is that I was on like a family vacation for a few days. I was just hoping to kind of have like a a low-key free agency recap. And then I, like, you know that gif of like the skeleton being blown away by like a bomb <laughs> hanging onto a chain link fence? That's how I felt on the other side of that phone call where you're just going in on Hayward. Well, my bad. Sorry to ruin your vacation. <laughs> was it the first time? Won't be the last time? It was amazing because I was like, you know what? I don't really disagree with any of this. I think we could probably tone it down a little bit. Uh, speaking of toning it down, Tom in Australia says, Aaron Baines is a shithead. Surely you could choose a better descriptor of a fringe NBA player for both the sake mm. of Elizabeth and Aaron Baines' fellow Australians. And Tom, I want to tell you something. Um, first of all, we heard from a, a few different Australians who took exception to the Aaron Baines descriptor, and I really did regret it because I forgot that I said it, <laughs> and um, until hearing from a couple different Australians, it's, every now and then I get caught up in the heat of the moment. At that point on last week's podcast, I was looking at the Celtics as a threat to Giannis and a threat to his first finals trip, and so... There was some animosity because of that. And then at the same time, I was really talking about kind of the random role players that have shined for Boston over the years. And I think what I what I felt in my heart when I said that was um, Kelly Olynyk is a shithead. But yeah, look, you're you're scarred for life by the Olynyk experience, and it's just going to randomly pop through in these little outbursts, guys. It's <laughs> It's PTSD. It's a classic symptom. Don't don't get too hard on Andrew, but I do appreciate Tom's email for shouting out Elizabeth. It's been a while since we had Elizabeth uh, here to lord over you and try to keep your mouth clean. I think that's a good reset. I, I hope you're paying attention. I absolutely am paying attention, and I would like to announce a resolution. I am going to try Whoa. not to curse on this podcast anymore. Because first of all, <laughs> Aaron Baines is a good guy. And Kelly Olynyk, I've heard, is a good guy. I don't need to be calling anyone shitheads, first of all. And also, I think that we're getting popular enough that we should try to clean up the language. So I'm going to do my best for Elizabeth and everybody else to stop cursing. And uh, apologies to Aaron Baines. He's great. Look, I don't know who this we you keep mentioning is if, unless you've got some foul mouth mouse in your pocket, okay? I've been keeping it clean for years, and I expect you to do the same. And I love that you're going to step up. And Aaron Baines in Australia it is the contingent that's guilt-tripped you into more professionalism. <laughs> yeah. We'll see how it goes. I don't know how long this is going to last. But um, speaking of professionalism, Brandon in L.A. says... Would you guys be as bitter and as petty as Blake Griffin was this weekend if you were in his shoes? Ralph Lawler said on the Clippers broadcast, Blake not only refused to talk to him, 
but wouldn't even acknowledge that he existed. And we all saw him blow off Steve Ballmer and what he said slash didn't say about Ballmer after the game. What do you think? So, Ben, give me your take. You were there at Staples, correct? I was. It was a real, real show. It was a very entertaining game, first of all. Blake played incredibly well. Um, that was the game, by the way, that I wanted Kawhi Leonard to have, you yes. know, back down in San Antonio, but I guess he's just not wired that way. I'm not sure. Maybe he's not competitive. <laughs> hold, enough. hold on. All right. <laughs> I, I can't just let you lie through your teeth on the podcast. That is not the game that you wanted Kawhi to have. You would have given him some token respect had Kawhi had that game, but you were not rooting for <laughs> Kawhi to go in and blow the doors off the Spurs. Okay. Great point. That was the game I was afraid Kawhi was going to have, but he didn't. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it was a real masterclass performance from Blake Griffin. I mean, he was everywhere, diving for loose balls, getting to the free throw line, blocking shots above the rim, draining three-pointers. He should have just let his play do the talking. And this whole back and forth about did he blow Balmer off, did he not blow Balmer off, I mean, he was trying to you know pin it on a reporter after the game and basically said the whole thing was made up. Yeah. First of all, there was clear video evidence that it wasn't just like he accidentally ran by Balmer. Balmer was standing right there, like 10 feet away. Blake knew he was there, and he made a, a concerted effort to not talk to him. So I didn't like how he handled the postgame at all. I don't think... Uh, it was an accurate representation of what the reporter had done mm-hmm. um, or what had actually happened. But I, as we said during last week's Lantern segment, Andrew, he's not over it. And this is how grudges get held. You don't halfway grudge somebody. It's not like, oh, yeah, I'm mad at you when I talk about you in the paper, but when I see you, I dap you up. Like, I, I do respect Blake on a certain level for just keeping it 100% real. He's mad at the Clippers. So he is going to exude that in every single possible scenario and um, he should have cleaned it up. You know, the the aftermath stuff wasn't great. But blowing off Balmer, I thought, was totally fine. Yeah. Uh, blowing off Doc, blowing off Ralph Lawler, I mean, whatever. Like, he felt wronged. He didn't feel like they made the trade the right way. He put his story out there. His story made sense in terms of how the trade went down. I would understand his frustration. Um, my only beef was how he tried to pretend that he wasn't angry. You know, it's like, oh, no, I didn't blow him off. It's just what I normally do when I run off the court. It's like, sure, Blake, come on, man. Yeah, I don't know. Look, uh, first of all, the question here was from Brandon was, what would you do if you were in his shoes? And, um, I mean, as I explained on last week's Lantern segment, Lantern brought to you by LinkedIn, uh, I don't, Very nice. <laughs> I, I, I don't see the point in, in harboring a resentment and I would have just shaken Balmer's hand and, and had that be the end of it. I think Blake would have been able to avoid all of these other questions had he done that. And people would have been talking about how incredible he was on the court that day. Um, Great point. And the way he handled it instead, I mean, look, Reasonable people can can disagree about whether he should have shaken Balmer's hand, and I totally understand people who who say, "Look, he has a right to be pissed off," but like the way he handled the post game, a denying that he ignored Balmer and pretending that it, this was his normal pregame routine, that was whack, and then to attack Jovan, the reporter who reported on it pregame. That was even weaker on his part, and um, the whole thing just left left a bad taste in my mouth on an afternoon that, where we should have been talking about just how incredible Blake is, because like he is 
still a really good player. And I think if we're looking at, uh, across the league at various NBA stars, like he is probably one of the cooler personalities and, and one of the more normal, well-adjusted players we have today. And um, so I really like Blake. It was just a bummer the way he handled all of it because it was a, it was a bad look in several different respects. Okay, to answer the question, here's how I would have done it. Like, if I was as... First of all, you got to put yourself in Blake's head. He's clearly really, really mad. He's not going to just be able to get over it, right? Yeah. So if you know that you're that upset about it and you feel like philosophically it was wrong, I think he needed to telegraph that better, right? Like, in some of the interviews he was doing before the game, he was saying things like, you know... It worked out for them. It worked out for us. We're all going to move on. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. What I would have done instead is I would have just come out and clearly stated, I don't think that they handled the trade properly. Yeah. I don't want to have any communication with them when I'm in Los Angeles. I would uh, appreciate if they just gave me distance. And so that, you know, just kind of let me do my thing and let them do their thing. And we're going to sort it out on the court. That's what I would have done because... That of that circumvents all of this stuff, right? Like now you're you're not, you're not even getting yourself into this kind of a mess where Balmer's like, hur, 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 give me a high five. Like you don't even have to deal with any of that, right? You just short circuit it. Well, okay. And- Counterpoint though, if you go and shake Balmer's hand, then all of this is sort of there's no speculation about like why didn't he shake his hand, blah blah blah, and then it, everybody after the game is talking about how classy Blake was and then how shady the Clippers were. I would have done, I would have shaken his hand simply because you're more likely to make the Clippers look bad in that scenario. So maybe I would have harbored the resentment, but I would have been more strategic about the way I executed like the game day catch up with Balmer. No, I hear you. I mean, look, taking the high road would have also been the path of least resistance, right? Yeah. Like that, that would have been the, the simple move. But I think, Ultimately, like he was asked as a follow-up question after the game. Well, look, you didn't shake his hand. You're telling us you didn't blow Balmer off. If you had another chance, hypothetically, to shake his hand, would you do it? And Blake didn't even want to answer that question, right? Yes. So he he's at that level where he can't even bring himself to shake a guy's hand. That's how upset he is. I'm not going to try to guilt trip him into saying like, look, just do it and, and it'll all go away. Or like, do it and people will view you on like, you know, a higher like moral plane. I don't expect anyone, if they felt that disrespected, to turn the other cheek that far, if yeah. that makes sense. I guess what I'm saying is do the right thing because that's a way to underscore how shady the Clippers were last year. And like the better you look, the worse they're going to look, um, which is a yeah, little I think different he was, than how I started out. <laughs> but I think that's yeah, how I no, really I, feel. I think he was worried that by doing that, it would kind of let the Clippers off the hook. Yeah. And... The ultimate uh, takeaway from all of this, though, really did make the Clippers look pretty bad, right? Because we spent three days talking about how upset they had made Blake. And, like, Blake didn't look good either, but didn't he kind of bring everybody down by, like, blowing this whole thing up? Like, didn't basically – wasn't it a lose-lose, both for him and the Clippers, because we're all talking about that negative stuff that he supposedly didn't want us talking about? Yeah, and I wish it had been a win, because again, Blake is awesome. I wish it had been a win for him. Um, but I do think that like, if when you get right down to it, you can't talk about any of this without talking about what the Clippers actually did. And um, I mean, in, in that respect, Blake absolutely should still be bitter. I would still be bitter if I were him. Because, like, when you go back to that summer 
free agency. Like, Blake hadn't been around Balmer for that long. And, um, they, you know, they were basically entering into a business partnership together. And, um, and they were pitching him on, like, a lifetime as the centerpiece of that team. And, and it was a risk on Blake's part as well. Uh <laughs> And so to turn around six months later and trade him to Detroit, like I would be pissed off about that for life just because like of all the conversations where those guys probably lied to his face, that would, I mean, like, you can't really come back from, from that. Yeah, there's microscopic insects that have longer lifetimes than the Clippers and Blake's lifetime together. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just unbelievably shady. I mean, that was nearly as bad as the Isaiah Thomas deal. Um but it was probably the right decision for the Clippers, so whatever. And they're in good shape now. Um, one more hey, question. Hey, real quick. You know, speaking real quick, though, about the Lantern, this is just a teaser because we're going to have the Lantern segment on the next episode. I just want you to know, Andrew, Yeah. people have been hitting me up constantly at Ben.Golliver on Instagram to get in on the Lantern fun. And I've actually got people now pitching me their real-life problems and situations, family dramas, relationship issues, because they want me to take them to you, Dr. Sharp, for solutions <laughs> and, and everything. So, I mean, I'm going to still put my lantern prompt out there, but I, I just want you to be ready. Like, you're becoming a self-help guru over here, thanks to the lantern. And I hope you've got yourself, like, finely tuned with your life advice because we're going to need you on the next episode. There you go. Well, in general, it's not healthy to harbor resentments. I mean, it's like drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. It's not a good thing. We do understand it with Blake. We'll take each um, each family therapy session on a case-by-case basis. I, I look forward to this. I, I have no idea where the lantern is going to take us, but... Um, it is ultimately all an elaborate scheme for you to promote your Instagram, and and I know that that's why we do the podcast in general, so <laughs> I support it. I have to support it. Um, hey, Andrew, did you hear the big news on that? What? I'm pretty close to 4,000 followers. Oh, it's, it's, boy. it's a pretty big deal. Pretty big deal on the internet. I, I'm sure you might have seen a headline or something about that. <laughs> sure. But... Uh, congrats, man. I'm really happy for you. Moving on, Kirk says... As a fan of a Mavs team that's currently on an upswing, broadly speaking, I'm having a lot of fun right now. Is it fun to be a Warriors fan or a Rockets fan or Celtics or Sixers? These teams with all these expectations, all of their fans seem to be miserable. Do you have any response to that, Ben? Uh, I think he's on to something. I mean, that's what I was saying about the Celtics fans earlier. They're certainly not alone. Um, you know, and also Kyrie was talking about the expectations thing too, like how they kind of maybe felt a little bit swelled up by it because they didn't have any last year and this year they had a, a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's a real factor. You know, I was talking to a coach this week uh, who is not at the NBA level um, and he was kind of running through all the challenges that uh, were facing him in his position, uh, you know, just conflicting interest younger players versus older players roster turnover trying to develop a core and keep the core together like he's going through all these like laundry list of um of issues and then he pointed back up and he says but look the very best coaches uh, the very best nba coaches have bigger problems than anybody it's like more money more problems right like right. the bigger stars you have the bigger issues you have and um i'm not sure really how you get around it and that's why i've always banged the drum so hard for san antonio because they've been able to sidestep a lot of those uh, expectation, you know, daunting expectations or crumbling in the face of pressure and that kind of thing. Yeah. Better than just basically anybody. 
But yeah, I mean, Steve Kerr has a really hard job. As we're seeing this year, Brad Stevens has a really, really hard job. You can go, and Luke Walton, I mean, get, take away LeBron <laughs> for two weeks. Now, Luke Walton, I mean, Luke Walton told me to my face point blank, and I believed him 100% that he thought he had the best job in the league when we started the season. Yeah. I mean, he had convinced himself of that fact. I'm not sure he's still feeling that way with, with two weeks without LeBron. You know what I mean? Well... Uh, And the fans are right there with the coaches. Luke probably has a pretty awesome life, which isn't necessarily true if you're coaching in Sacramento or Charlotte or Memphis or whatever. Like, Luke is living in Manhattan Beach and uh, just doing great, like, 80% of the time, except the 20% of his life where he has to coach that Lakers team and deal with Magic Johnson breathing down his neck. Do you think he's going to make it through the season? I think he will make it through the season. Um the early buzz on whether he's going to survive the summer is not good, Andrew. Yeah. Uh, well, it seems like Magic has been angling to get him out of there like for over six or seven months now. And uh, eventually he'll probably win that battle. Um, in part because the Lakers, I mean, look, their next 10 games are really difficult. After after their battle with Boylan tonight, like it's going to get really dicey and they need LeBron to come back and there are starting to be whispers that like the injury is is pretty serious and he he may not come back for the nationally televised Thunder and Rockets games this weekend like I don't know they're not in great shape um but in general Kirk's question is a good one it's important to recognize that there are an inordinate amount of fan bases around the league right now that are pretty miserable. Um, I was going to, it's funny, the Sixers are, are as miserable and frustrated as the Celtics, but I just saw the score. They are currently beating the crap out of the Wolves right now. So um, a nice night for the process trusters. Yeah, that makes it all better. Everything's going <laughs> yeah, every, to work out in Philly. I, I don't know. If I were ranking like the happiest fan bases i think kirk's mavs um are definitely in a good spot because like kings yeah kings the mavs gotta be the kings number one right now the mavs are kings Kings fans are playing with so much house money i mean i understand like long term you've got luca but still you got to get through this dennis smith jr trade you've got to watch harrison barnes on a nightly basis like you've got to deal with the prospect of wesley matthews and his contract like the kings i mean I don't even blame their fans for being so excited about Buddy Heald because, like, what are you supposed to say? Just run with it. It's great. Just go. I think number one, though, has to be the Bucks, right? Because they have kind of fallen ass backwards into this juggernaut team that's just blowing teams off the court every other night. And you've got Giannis, and he – I mean – who knows whether he'll stay or go, but that that stress is still like a year or two out. And uh, I don't know. I can't imagine watching Jason Kidd for several years in a row and then suddenly waking up and having this be your team. It's a great point. Um, I guess one problem I have, though, and I'm not trying to take shots at the Bucks fans because like the Bucks followers that we have, you know, cultivated here over the last couple of years are real diehards. They know their stuff and they're all in and I know they've got a small group that goes to the home games. It's always cheering like they're soccer fans, like they're rowdy and they're really into it. Yeah. I mean, no shots fired, but like how big is this Bucks fan base? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, how, that's a like, fair question. Yes. Andrew, they, they had Giannis waiting for a table at a cantina and I still don't de- uh, believe any of their stories. I don't think that they have him on enough of a pedestal. I don't think that they completely 
appreciate Giannis enough. I'm being dead serious. No, if I you know. Put Giannis. No, seriously. If you put Giannis in Sacramento right now, they would already have a statue for Giannis. There'd be a 25 foot tall statue <laughs> out of pure gold in downtown Sacramento. It would be the number one tourist destination. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do think the fans who actually care is I'm still very happy for them because I used to talk to a couple Bucks bloggers frequently and you know we would always identify with each other because we rooted for these completely dysfunctional organizations and the Wizards <laughs> and the Bucks. And um, I don't know. I'm still living that existence. The Bucks fans woke up one day and they're like, wow, we've got the best player of the next generation and this 60-win team. It's great. It must be nice. Um, the Yeah, no, it must be nice that the Milwaukee's 30 and 12 as we speak and Bradley Beal's logging 55 minutes <laughs> yeah, and a loss. 55 minutes and a loss. It's perfect. Um, I would say here, here are my rankings. Uh, and these are okay. on the fly. At number one, Bucks. Number two, happiest fan base, the Denver Nuggets. I think enjoying this ride this season is um, it looks pretty awesome. I'm very happy for all those people. Number three, the Mavs, because while I don't personally buy into all of the Luka hype, and by the way, we had a listener named Tomer who says, we have turned 12-time Tatum into a real thing. This year, it's time to step it up. How about first ballot Luka? So <laughs> that's definitely a thing. First ballot Luca um, is his new name on the Open Floor podcast. And um, yeah, rooting for first ballot Luca would be pretty great. I'm happy for all those people. So they are three. Kings are four. And then I don't know. I mean, I don't know if the Clippers really have fans, but like watching that team would be pretty fun. Um, they do have fans. I mean, again, it's it's a, a niche group, but they're really into this group as they should be. I think you slept on the Kings. You you definitely underrated the Kings on this list. Also, another one can I throw out there? Yeah, Oklahoma City Thunder. I mean, those fans are have been pretty diehard for years. It was looking really bleak last year, right? Yeah, and it was also looking bleak. Like over the summer, is Westbrook going to ever change? Is he ever going to adapt? Are we just going to watch the same thing over and over again? And I think that they had managed to keep that part of their brain turned off and just remain completely in denial. But thankfully, Westbrook didn't. He actually did change his game a little bit. And then Paul George is arguably the best surprise among the superstar class yeah. uh, in terms of how well he's played this season. So they've got to be loving life right now. I mean, they've got to be feeling they have a better chance to make the conference finals this year than certainly than they did last year. Uh, and after taking the body blow of KD leaving, um, this has been a pretty fun season for them. So I would have them in this group too. Um, yeah, that's good. Because I was at four teams and couldn't really find a fifth team and was about to conclude that there were only four happy fan bases in the league. We should also mention the Warriors, man. Their fans, I don't understand how they could be as critical of the team as they are, but like they never seem to be happy. And they, we really are at a macro level talking about like the most successful organization in all of sports over the last 10 years or so. And uh, they need to just chill out and enjoy this shit. Like Steph the other night was just out of his mind against the Mavs. And like, that's what's crazy about the Warriors is they'll have a, a, a bad loss here and there. And then everyone will freak out. And then every other game they play is either a, 30-point blowout or some kind of mind-blowing performance from Clay or Steph or KD. And now they've got Boogie coming back this weekend. Like, 
They are still so ridiculously unfair. I hope everyone in the Bay can find a way to enjoy it. Well said. Uh, they are not on this list, though, and that's sad. <laughs> yeah, and it's weird. I don't really understand it. I think it's probably a, a Durant thing, but... Um, well, they've been spoiled pretty early. I mean, it, the winning went to their head pretty quick. It's okay. We could say it. Yeah. I mean, they're our friends. No, I get it, it. it. You know, you win 73 games, and you, know, you go back to back. It's, you know, all of a sudden the expectations are so much higher than anybody else has dealt with. You can't really blame them for how they react because there's no precedent for it. I actually understand that. And that's why if I were a Warriors fan, I would want Durant to leave so that they can be underdogs again. And I can root for Steph to, to win another title regardless. Um, but anyways, let's finish off here with one question uh, from Carlos. And speaking of Kirk's Mavs, Carlos says, last week I sent an email about how upsetting Dennis Smith Jr. was and how he wants the spotlight all season, just like last season. And it looks like I was right. Dallas is officially in talks to trade him. What are your trade scenarios for Dennis Smith Jr.? What do you think, Ben? Can they trade him straight to China or do you have to go... (laughs) Like you have to pick another NBA team, or what's the what's the fastest way to get him? Where oh he's going? man, this is the this is a really tough situation for me because you know I am not a Rick Carlisle guy, never have been, and I really would love to crush them for not giving Dennis Smith Jr. enough time and for basically uh, wasting a top on. ten pick. And look. I think some of that is probably fair because Carlisle just can't make it work with guys. And it's it's not just Dennis Smith Jr. It's, I mean, it, going back to Rondo, going back to Nerlens. <laughs> These are all players that just aren't that good. So that's the thing. It's it's really hard to, to completely crush them for this. I do think that there have been people I've seen um, criticizing asset mismanagement and, and saying the Mavs are going to get screwed in this trade and it's just a bad look for the organization. Some of that is fair. I just am not a huge believer in, in Dennis Smith Jr. and where he's going. So the last time I talked about Dennis Smith Jr., it got transcribed and went viral because I was so mean. So I'm not going to try to repeat that. Uh-huh. Um, I'm just going to say, first of all, in Dallas's defense, if you look at that class behind him, it's not like he's the only mistake, right? I mean, we're going to focus on him because he's a top 10 pick, barely. He's number nine, right? Yeah. But, I mean, like Malik Monk, Luke Kennard. Dude, like, we don't a lot talk of guys who... enough about Stan Van Gundy taking Luke Kennard 12th. <laughs> like, that was a really <laughs> deep draft. And Stan Van made that pick, and everybody was like, what the hell is he doing? And nobody. the only reason that pick didn't get more heat is because nobody really cares about the Pistons. But like Donovan Mitchell, the night of the draft, this is in hindsight, the night of the draft, Donovan Mitchell would have made like 10 times more sense in Detroit than Kennard did. But anyways. Yeah. And look, there were better guys behind Dennis Smith Jr. who got drafted. Yeah. Donovan Mitchell, uh, Bam, you know, your favorite guy mm-hmm. down there in uh, Miami. Uh, John Collins in Atlanta's had a really nice season. Kuzma, I mean, Josh Hart, like there were guys in the first round, right? But it wasn't just Dallas like saying, oh yeah, Dennis Smith Jr. Like we're randomly really high on him. Like he was a pretty much a consensus, what, like top 12 pick, right? Yeah, no, he was he so, was top five to top 10. I mean, people really liked him. Yeah. And, and I think that what Dallas was doing, which actually made sense at the time was saying, look, 
Like, we don't know how often we're going to be in the top 10. And while we're here, we'd rather take a big swing on a guy who could be a legit superstar. And for about a week at the first summer league, when his rookie year, Dennis Smith was. He was like the talk of summer league. People were convincing themselves that he was a future all-star and everything was great. And then he sort of, like, everyone kind of sobered up midway through last year and was like, look... This guy's not very efficient. He's too small to ever be good on defense and also seems kind of disinterested in playing defense whatsoever. And Yeah, and I mean, the comparison I made the last time was to Moutier. And the advantage Dallas has, if they're serious mm-hmm. about trading him now, that means they gave up earlier than Denver gave up on Moutier. So you should be able to get a little bit more in the return package. But I can't see them getting much of anything of consequence for Smith. I just think the... The book's out on him. Very inefficient shooter, poor decision maker. It's not a Carlisle thing. This guy just makes bad decisions. Um, can he improve, you know, two, three years down the line? You know, it's possible. Is he ever going to be like a lead point guard for a good team? It's possible. Though. I don't see it. I don't think he's got the dist- – the, the playmaking for other stuff, I'm not sure he's going to be able to get rid of those blinders. Uh, defensively, you know, I, I hear people say, okay, he's taking a step forward. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. I think he needs to have the ball. And so now he's marginalizing whoever your other playmakers are. I don't know. I, I He's just somebody else's problem to me. Like if I'm Orlando or I'm Phoenix and I've got nothing going on at the point guard position, yeah. like, okay, roll the dice. If I'm any team who has a capable point guard, just let yeah, somebody else well, do it. And Dallas is now in a tough spot. The, the, the only thing I would criticize them for is is not just kind of waiting until the end of the year to deal with any of this, um, because I think that trading him now, they, like their leverage is non-existent because they've, I don't know who leaked it that he wanted out. I think it was probably Dennis Smith's camp, but like it just, well, <laughs> it was reality. Look, I mean, he doesn't he doesn't fit and he's not good. So like he he I think to me he's been a trade peace since a month into the season once it became clear Luca was going to be the guy like I don't there was never a doubt to me he was going to be out you know at some point and most yeah, likely sooner it was rather clear than I just think if you're the Mavs try to manage it at least until June and then try to trade him before the draft because right now like if you're Phoenix or Orlando like you call the Mavs bluff and say look I like no one else is going to trade for this guy and and I don't know what Phoenix gives up like the idea of people throwing out Mikhail Bridges, I mean, I don't know. Would you do that trade if you were Phoenix? No. And I don't think that they're going to get I think that's uh, wishful thinking. You know, that, that's yeah. that young of a prospect. Yeah, I mean, I could easily see like him for Josh Jackson. You know, you're just trading disappointments, and maybe there's better positional fits on both sides, so you try that. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't well, think you're anybody good. there you go. <laughs> that's kind of a downer note to end on, but uh, – yeah, it's not the end of the world, though. I mean, you were right. They built him up a little bit too much early. And not they, but like, you know, the buzz built him up because he's athletic. He hasn't been good. He wasn't good as a rookie. He hasn't been good his sophomore season. It happens. Not every, you know, major point guard is going to pan out. And they're going to be moving on from Dennis Smith Jr. so quickly in, in Dallas. Your head's going to spin. Six months from now, do you think they're going to be talking about Dennis Smith Jr. ever? Or are they just going to be selling millions more Luka Doncic jerseys. I, I, think that I do. Um, and certainly Doncic makes it much easier to rebound. What would freak me out if I were a Mavs fan is um, 
the potential for the entire organization to react to this 60-game Doncic sample, or it hasn't even been 60 games, it's been like 40 games, and to say, look, we are close, let's go get him some help to win as soon as possible next year. Like, if I were them, I would still be trying to, like, play the long game. And uh, and I think Doncic has been good enough to trick them into thinking they're closer than they actually are. And, like, the Mavs have been short-sighted over and over and over again over the last 10 years or so. And so, like, I would have my guard up if I were a Mavs fan. <laughs> and we just called them a top-five happiest fan base, but maybe things will get more complicated over the next couple months. I think you're right. It's safe to bet on Cuban making some win now moves here uh, in the not too distant future and, and handing out some contracts that make our eyes bulge. I mean, that's, it's definitely possible, but I'm not sure exactly what they're waiting on. I mean, Luca's been incredible. I mean, somebody I was listening to on a podcast at the beginning of the year was comparing him to, you know, minimum wage employees <laughs> at Seven Eleven and saying he was saying he was like a Joe First Ingles, ballot uh, Luca. You know, I think by... Maybe a rich man's Joe Ingles, and instead we've got a guy who's got more all-star votes. <laughs> oh votes man, than did Kevin you see Durant. KD's response and... to that the other night? It was great. Yeah, I did. <laughs> all-star, it was a salty, okay. Wasn't it? Um, no, my my Luca opinions are so far out of step with uh, <laughs> like mainstream basketball people that I'm just gonna keep it to myself. Old first ballot Luca, he's having a hell of a year. I think my my comparison that i settled on at the end of everything was like joe johnson i still feel pretty good about it but um he's been great no there's no question about it can we end on one other question from kenny here all right so kenny says this past christmas my brother decided to get me basketball tickets to see my favorite team take on the man the institution it was wizards versus spurs later this january Going into 2019, I told myself that I would be 100% honest, a real stand-up guy, and I was going to eliminate even white lies from my social lexicon. So naturally, I told him thanks, but no thanks. I've never been so disgusted with a Wizards team. But then, John Wall went down. Air Panda has been out of his mind. Sato has gone all glue guy on us and this squad has become one of the most enjoyable wizard squads i have ever seen after the moral victory that was wizards raptors i asked my brother if he still had those tickets um ben Mm. i i think there may have been a question that i cut off at the end of that but i just do want to talk about the wizards for two minutes they are legitimately really fun to watch right now. I have no idea how to feel about it. But Bradley uh, Beal, do you see why I, I said the Lakers should think hard about trading for Beal right now? No. I mean, I see a team that's just shooting itself in the foot every single night, running up his miles for no reason. They're lucky they lost that game to the Raptors in double OT. And it was a moral victory, but it was also just a victory. And this team has got no direction. Zero direction. They are 100% finishing in either 8th or ninth place. Like, no question about it. See, this is the thing. This is why you need to travel more, like people were saying, and get yourself out of this D.C. bubble. Because just because the Wizards are more fun without John Wall doesn't mean they're actually fun. Because there's other teams out there that are way more fun Um, than these Wizards. There's no – look, Kenny's email, first of all, shout out to Kenny. I'm happy that you're happy. But it is really, really sad (laughs) hearing him write, this squad has been one of the most enjoyable Wizards squads I've ever seen. (laughs) They're like, 
I there I think there's still five games under 500. Um, but Beal is legit, and the Lakers look. They're not getting Anthony Davis, and Beal is about as good as they're gonna do. He's 25 years old. He's got two years left. We'll have one of the best deals in the league among superstars. Um, but I don't know if the Wizards would trade him. So yeah, this is basically just me talking to myself about the Wizards. Great way to end the podcast. No, I mean, it's like they're one of the most beautiful cows I've ever seen. Uh, Well, I identify with Kenny's disgust, and I have been having a lot of fun watching the Sadoransky Big Panda Wizards. Um, But, Ben, on that note, let's reconvene later in the week. And, um, yeah, man, I'll talk to you soon. That sounds great, Andrew. Our listeners can go to Apple Podcasts and search for Open Floor. That's two words. At that page, Andrew, they'll be able to find... Uh, a place to rate and review us all they got to do is scroll down tap five stars leave us a nice message it's just that easy it helps us spread the word and don't forget email all comments questions concerns comparisons uh, of your christmas presents to uh you know whatever else it might be openfloormail at gmail.com openfloormail at gmail.com and also we've got the lantern coming up later this week everybody's excited for it andrew i know you're ready for it so don't forget, check out at Ben.Golver on Instagram for the lantern prompt and send me your replies on there. Also, last plug, the world famous radio.com slash open floor. You thought I was going to forget it, Andrew, but I didn't. Until later this week, radio.com, I will talk to you. Man. I'll talk to you soon.